This is Joseph Giacobelli. I'm an analyst, investor, author, and the host of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast, which is a philanthropic series dedicated to the promotion of knowledge and discussion on sustainable finance in Asia from the perspective of the business of decarbonization and the energy transition in the region, which consumes about half of the world's energy and electricity. Please support this effort by liking and by subscribing to the podcast. Hi there, and welcome to the 28th episode of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. Today we talk about the ocean, specifically the blue economy. Now, the blue economy's annual turnover is 3 to 6 trillion US dollars, according to United Nations. And there are some estimates which believe that uh, it's going to double by 2030. And this presents, obviously, a growing opportunity for business and investment. In this episode, Dr. Michael Lokinvar Sim Abundo, the CEO of Ocean Pixel, first offers a clear and detailed definition of the blue economy, its ecosystem, including ocean marine clean, clean energy, of course, as well as the intersection with decarbonization and the energy transition. Mike also discusses the data management and intelligence angle of the blue economy. We then move to Ocean Pixel, his company, as a case study in the blue economy, with Mike offering three examples of projects that the company has been working on. Please support this podcast by rating it and liking it. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hi, and uh, welcome again to episode 28 of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. Today, we've got Dr. Mike Abundo, as I mentioned earlier. Hello, Mike, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you very, very much for making the time. I hope all is well down in Singapore and uh, the weather is not uh, too hot or too rainy or any of the, um, any of the mixture of those. <laughs> well, Singapore is always tropical, but yeah, thank you for having me here, Joseph. No, I really appreciate it. And I think that your insights are going to be quite, quite interesting, given, you know, your A, academic background and B, your entrepreneurial uh, activities right now. So um, could we perhaps start uh, a little bit with um, talking about your background uh, and how you got involved with uh, Asia's decarbonization and energy transition? Sure. People describe me as a green and blue technopreneur. And uh, I think that has its um, history way back um, in my university days. I came from the University of the Philippines before I got stationed as a back then research fellow in uh, Singapore's Energy Research Institute at Nanyang Technological University. And now I still am a research and development program integration manager at NTU. <laughs> but they've allowed us to also handle um, commercialization of certain IP and and in the same token, we've managed to actually spin off uh, a company called Ocean Pixel in 2014. Now, personally, I am uh, an engineer by background, uh, first and foremost, electronics and uh, communications engineering was my bachelor's. I took a master's in electrical engineering with focus on instrumentation and control. And would, would you believe it that I did work on some brain machine interfaces back then and before I went to becoming um, 
laboratory head for instrumentation in robotics and control lab. And that paved the way to looking at data acquisition, embedded systems, uh, primarily for applications in the environmental field, whether it's geologists uh, looking at automated weather stations and mm. remote sensing for genetic engineers or um, simple uh, underwater um, sensor networks and uh, uh, video camera or energy uh, systems uh, that could last for a long period of time because you don't want to keep on sending folks to replace batteries underwater mm -hmm. or offshore buoys. Um, marine scientists and oceanographers, we've worked with them very closely. And this was uh, way back between 2004 all the way to 2010, I would say. Um, I took my PhD then in ele uh, electrical and electronics engineering, triple E, as they would say it in the industry uh, lingo. And mm. I would say I had uh, three things that I wanted to look into back then. One was embedded systems. Another one was biomedical engineering. And then lastly, something in the sustainable energy space. Um, I had a little bit of an introspection around that and said that maybe the Philippines, I went around to consult uh, different stakeholders and concluded that um, the Philippines, primarily the Department of Energy, did not have um, enough expertise um, to pursue ocean renewable energy, which was back then um, already part of the renewable energy law in 2008. And so I decided to pursue my PhD, um, uh, focusing on marine renewable energy and uh, specifically to look at how ocean renewables um, in countries like the Philippines and the broader Southeast Asia could begin to be developed. And with that expertise came looking at opportunities outside the region. And, you know, we had uh, a scholarship from, from the Department of Science and Technology of the Philippines that allowed us to go and be uh, attached uh, using a sandwich program to anyone who was willing to host us, really. Um, we were called scholars uh, under the Engineering Research and Development for Technology, ERDT for short, and which led me to um, working in Singapore under the Energy Research Institute. And uh, that made me focus a little bit on how technologies in this ocean renewable energy space could be uh, adopted by uh, countries such as uh, those in Southeast Asia, because a lot of those technologies were probably designed for European, Northern mm. Sea, sort of strong energy mm. rich uh, locations, you know? But uh, it's a different um, setting here um, in, in, in the region, Southeast Asia and maybe other parts uh, of the world where Countries are really either small island developing states. They probably don't have offshore oil and gas industries just yet. Mm. Uh, they, they were working on maybe small systems, you know, sub-megawatt type of markets. And what we were seeing back then was that the technology was just way too big uh, and way too expensive in terms and complex to install. So... That kind of sparked my interest a little bit on, on marine renewables. So personally speaking, um, I, I've been involved in uh, 
looking at how um, technology could help in various, uh, should we say, uh, solving of problems, whether it be in uh, simple data acquisition stuff or telemetry or uh, maybe uh, uh, bridging the gap between um, technology development to commercialization. So translation of technology was something of an interest of mine. And mm. and and even though the Philippines uh, uh, was a little bit uh, early in those days in terms of uh, technology startups, uh, we were already involved being that we were in, in a good university that actually looked at um, some technologies and, and looking at how you could have startups and spinoffs happen um, around them and then bring bring the technology forward. Now, mm. my quote-unquote uh, uh, translation into the Singapore ecosystem was also probably uh, one of the more influential things uh, that shaped me to who I am and what I'm able to do. And that was primarily because Singapore has a really good innovation ecosystem. And I say mm. that because uh, they have... Um, not just uh, good talent that they attract, but also support mechanisms to allow those talents to pursue um, innovative uh, activities. Um, we've never heard of proof of concept grants or proof of value grants or or you know ideation grants that that were a bit substantial um, in terms mm-hmm. of quantum. And there was always that question of uh, where do we find resources to pursue next steps and. And, and Singapore opened up for me um, that if you have a good idea and you know how to um, communicate this idea all the way to, let's say, um, either businesses or end users or the ecosystems around it, then it is actually not impossible for you to get the kind of financial support that, that you could, could get. So. And and mm. that um, rung uh, true um, to some of the endeavors, whether it's research, collaboration-based activities, or you know, as I mentioned, um, a spin-off entity that we have, um, this company um, that that I am in now as Ocean Pixel. <clears throat> um, that that really then uh, uh, supported a lot uh, the growth of uh, an initial idea. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know I've been sliding into <laughs> what uh, sort of I've been busy with, but so the the inspiration for me as a as a a young uh, <laughs> I, I would say a young inquisitive mind. Um, I I was lucky enough to be uh, born near the sea, so ever since I was young, I knew um, at least how to <laughs> appreciate uh, the sea, the ocean, and and how to quote unquote interface with what can be done in uh, coastal and island mm. uh, environments, you know, whether it's mm-hmm, as simple mm-hmm. as uh, um, picnics or swimming or playing with your siblings and uh, swimming um, <laughs> out to, let's say, boats and mm-hmm. understanding fishermen. And so that was sort of um, year on year. Um, and even every weekend, I would say, we would not miss a chance to go to either the beach or, or go to the sea, um, even across mm-hmm. the island. Just, you know, across the Davao Gulf, there's a small island called Samal where you take breakfast. So 
um, it was very inherent, I, I would say, in my um, trajectory of growing up to be close to the sea. And mm. the choice of looking at marine renewables for me was such a natural thing to think about because, A, that's right, you do have spaces at sea and you do have resources that you can tap at sea. Why isn't anyone thinking about this in the Philippine context just yet? And, you know, mm-hmm. um, research, yeah, one way led to another. And, uh, well, um, that became my um, dissertation topic. And uh, there was a lot to understand about marine environments and, and uh, a lot of respect uh, that I managed to sort of um, uh, also uh, assimilate um, for people who are studying um, ocean energy and that led me to looking at hey you know what um, marine renewable energy that's that would have been probably very early <laughs> back in 2012 mm-hmm. uh, when mm-hmm. I finished my PhD but uh, I thought that it was the future and if we didn't study it now or back then 2012 then wh- when else would we study it? it might be too late so I decided to dive into it and you know a couple of years later in 2014 we spun off ocean pixel which was primarily to look at how marine renewable energy that industry could be supported and then later on we understood that there were other sectors that needed energy um, in the coastal marine and offshore areas mm. and there was a definition that some folks coined around it and they called it the blue economy <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, was an eye opener for me. And I'll say, yeah, that's right. Mm, that's right. Mm, Applications mm, around this space, which makes use of the energy, that's what we need to support. And uh, there was a holistic thing there. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, that's really really important in mean, all of your comments about your your background because it puts into context something that I've been arguing for quite some time. That whenever you're talking about decarbonization, the energy transition, clean energy, etc., uh, it really involves an amalgamation of um, it's almost like pieces of puzzle, of a puzzle, and you need yes. to put those um, those together. You need you need to understand the finance side. You need to understand the research side. You need to understand the um, political side, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that um, you know you've got a you've got a great background in in terms of being able to put at least some of those. Uh, pieces of the puzzle uh, together. Now, I would guess that most listeners are familiar with the various aspects of uh, business and finance of, of clean energy in Asia, but I would guess that the bulk, including myself, um, are not uh, as sure about uh, the blue economy. So could you um, just very, very, very briefly define exactly what, what we're talking about when we're talking about the blue economy, please? Sure. Um, so there are a bunch of um definitions that one might find in the internet um are so but i i i particularly like or i hover around one uh, in particular which is uh, the world bank's definition which i think the asian development bank also uses um to a certain extent as one of their definitions to just to scope it out so the blue economy is the sustainable use of ocean resources whether it's for economic growth improved livelihoods and jobs while preserving the health of ocean ecosystems. Mm, so mm, mm, that's mm. it's a bit, you know, broad and holistic. So it's the sustainable use of these ocean resources, right? Um, right. So one might think that 
okay, uh, what are ocean resources? And people might just think about spaces and water mm. and maybe mm-hmm. food. <laughs> so, and, mm-hmm. you know, there are some things that they leave out there and uh, like energy, right? Energy in ocean spaces. You could use the ocean space for marine solar. You could use seas and ocean spaces for offshore wind. But you can also use ocean renewable energy, such as the movement of water. There are currents that are you could harness. So this could be tidal currents or ocean currents. Or you can Mm-mm-mm. look at the movement of the tides going high and low, which is because of the principle of the Earth-Sun gravitational system can also be harnessed. And there are what we call tidal barrages around the world that harness this type of, uh, of, of movement. And there are waves which are disturbances in the, in the surface, or there could be even internal waves. But, you know, people have been looking at wave energy converters. So then you have the saltiness of the water, and, and this is known as salinity gradients. You could also convert the salinity of the water if you have a more concentrated or salty uh, area and you have fresh water going into the sea, you could actually use that gradient to generate um, electricity too. And the thermal uh, gradient, so you have hot water on the surface and cold water underneath. So you could also generate energy from that. So, you know, there are things about the ocean um, that we maybe as lay people don't understand, but actually Mm. we can. Um, so what I've just described there is just the renewable energy side of things. Mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, the more obvious ones would be, okay, fish, obviously, that's food. Awesome. <laughs> you know, seaweed mm-hmm. and uh, seagrass, all of those are good. Mangroves, people talk about blue carbon now. And so the way that the ocean sequesters carbon um, and, and it's also useful. And then there's obviously shipping. and uh, tourism, right? There's there's a lot of economic activity uh, that makes use of ocean resources. So if there are already a lot of activities in what's called the economy, (laughs) uh, the sustainable use of these resources would be what Um, we call the blue economy. Mike, when we're talking about technologies, could we just very, uh, also very briefly, kind of segregate what is let's say, already well-established, uh, and then those technologies which are almost near commercialization or, you know, they're, they're pretty much proven, they just need more capacity, more money. And then yeah. also the third one, which would be, you know, what are some of the things that are in, in being investigated? So, for example, offshore wind obviously was quite early stage, say, 10 years ago. Uh, maybe 20, 20 let's say 20 to 30 years ago, <laughs> 20, 30 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago it was probably already um uh pre-commercial mainstream. right yeah. and then now yeah. now it's just mainstream right now you've got uh right. offshore uh, a whole bunch of countries in asia including uh korea japan um uh, australia and and the philippines yeah. as well looking at uh looking at offshore wind and then there's uh you know there's marine energy or tidal energy which is something that has been has been around for 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 a while so could you just very briefly segregate the three these kind of three stages the kind of already mainstream soon to be mainstream and kind of like you know emerging emerging, <laughs> emerging. yes yeah. so uh yeah so before i i do that classification of, of the, the three um, 
technology readiness levels as, as maybe we would uh, classify them. Um, so let's just broadly define marine renewable energy uh, being renewable energy that makes use of marine spaces or resources. So that being said, marine solar, offshore wind, uh, and tidal and wave and uh, ocean thermal, they're all marine renewable energy. But uh, there's a special subcategory, which is called ocean renewable energy, um, the likes of uh, tidal, um, tidal in-stream or currents or hydrokinetics, wave energy, ocean thermal energy, salinity gradients. These are all ocean energy, where the principle of the generation or the resource is ocean-based or sea-based. Mm-hmm. Whereas solar and wind, well, solar is from the sun, and you could be using stuff from the sun even if you weren't in marine space. It just so happens mm-hmm. that you were in marine space. So then that's still solar, but that's part of marine renewable energy because you're using marine space. Offshore wind, you're using wind, which is not necessarily just from the ocean or the sea, but uh, it is at sea, which is why you're using it offshore. So it's still marine renewables, but not ocean. So those that are ocean are primarily um, uh, tidal, bar- uh, tidal, high tide, low tide, or currents would be another one, wave, and then ocean thermal, and salinity gradient. So those five are mm. all ocean re- I just wanted to segregate that. Now, mm. which ones of these marine renewable energy technologies are in the, let's say, commercial or mainstream already? Um, so the two that are uh, mainstream um, are offshore wind and marine solar. So these two uh, quite evidently are seen around the world already in large scale, um, even though some may argue that marine solar, marine floating solar, I don't see that a lot just yet. Well, you know, look at China. They already have um, 40 megawatts uh, installed, uh, you know, in marine space. Singapore has a five megawatt um, floating solar and they're growing a bit more. There's a deal with uh, Indonesia to look at um, gigawatt scale installation. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's definitely a finance play now of project developers. So those I would call mainstream, those two. Now, for the pre-commercial, those that are sort of in pilot all the way to um, some form of um, uh, ramp up towards scaling the projects, whether it's multiple or multiple small devices or large scale devices, you have um, tidal in-stream energy. Um, tidal barrages are already um, pre-commercial, some of which are commercial, but um, there's been uh a slowdown of activity here because it has very huge environmental impact. So I would classify them at the sort of tail end of the pre-commercial. Um, mm. Then then you have um, uh, ocean thermal energy and wave energy um, as, as sort of uh, in the mid-technology readiness levels, um, test bedding and all moving into piloting already. They have been doing pilot work but they do make sense in earlier markets, uh, diesel mm-hmm. displacement replacement, or co-application markets where you have other uses like, like water, um, uh, whether it's uh, desalination or aquaculture. So they, they will make sense there. So the ones that are in the, um, emerging, uh, I would say it's a combination of technologies um, uh, at the precipice between emerging and, and sort of uh, pre-commercial. Um, so a little bit of some wave energy technologies, some OTEC as well. And then mm. salinity gradient um, on its own just for power generation um, 
like projects, uh, salinity gradient is a little still too expensive. So there, there needs to be a little bit more um, development there. But they are, uh, I would say, graduating from emerging to, let's say, pre-commercial, um, probably in a matter of uh, next few installations, I would say. So, so the, the ones that are in the really emerging are what I would say marine biomass or, you know, things that use algae and, and all that. That's still a little bit too early at this point in time. Um, but, you know, it, it takes adopters to be able to move the needle great thanks a lot for putting that into into context now you mentioned something that is close to my heart earlier which is you know data you know the monitoring and the moni monitoring data uh, data intelligence could could we dig into a little bit into this um what kind of monitoring and data intelligence are we are we talking about perhaps for the big ticket items so not not the emerging not the emerging technologies, sure. but some of the more established or, or soon to be, uh, you know, mainstream technologies. And, you know, could you help me understand what is the easy part and what is the hard part of acquiring mm. and, um, you know, securing the data? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, so we spoke about blue economy earlier, and we see marine renewables as a catalyst to developing the blue economy, just as with any sustainable uh, development project, uh, I think having sustainable energy uh, using renewables would be a good first step, um, especially if there are applications that need energy. So I haven't even touched on uh, what aquaculture or desalination or electric right. vessels uh, might look like, and I don't want to derail the con conversation, but they are part of the blue economy. And when it comes to energy and decarbonization, that's also a huge area of uh, I would say systems thinking to be applied. Now, on mm. your question of data intelligence and the monitoring side, um, it, it begins with with um, in, in project development speak. <laughs> they call it the the pre development phase, right? <laughs> but uh, in in normal layman lingo, it's like okay, planning. So. How do we start planning the development of blue economies around the world? How do we start planning the development or, or you know, um, a decision gate of how we get to whether we invest in something or not? Do we proceed with this project or not? Do we do we do we put in money um, for this um, intervention or not? So mm. that, that that question leads to a few smaller questions that need to be answered. Is there a site? That we could could utilize is is that site uh, um, not uh, in an area where there might be conflict? Um, what about resource on that site? Are there actually energy resources on that site? What about users? Are, are there users around the area? Are are there markets that we can quote unquote sell the electricity to? Mm -hmm. So th this then comes to multiple data layers that help you answer what project developers might call a pre-feasibility study or a feasibility study, you know, <laughs> before you mm -hmm. have a working um, sort of a concept or even a business model around it, a revenue stream right. that make it sustainable. So that alone um, is a lot of data. So you need site information um, about that marine space. You need market information. You need 
um, resource information, you also need technology information. So if I know that this site has the possibility of solar and wind and tidal currents and wave energy converters, which one do I choose? So I have a site which could use multiple technologies. Do I choose one? Do I choose two? Do I hybridize it? So you need to do a little bit of techno-economic analysis. So that requires, well, on top of cost data, obviously, certain type of technical mm. data. What about environmental impact? I mean, am I gonna, <laughs> am I gonna put in some stuff here which will be detrimental for the environment? So how do I know all those things, right? And and before I even put in anything, should I establish a baseline? <laughs> and, and so baselining would require you to understand the bathymetry, the the environments. Uh, the reefs around, uh, fish senses. And so all of this sort of baseline information, um, you probably want to establish that before someone points a finger at you and says, it's because of that project, that's why these people can't fish right. anymore. And that's why you have these blah, blah, blah. So, so you know, it, it paints a, a bad picture of, of good interventions uh, later on. So I, I think um, that kind of data... Um, will need you to understand also certain insights and uh, elicit certain insights um and for um for uh let's say an investor um you would probably want to know whether or not this project in this area with this resource makes sense what's the uh, IRR internal rate of return of my investment if i you know proceed mm. with this project and obviously, there are impact investors as well that say, okay, if, if this projects um, go ahead, uh, how many uh, you know male, female, mothers, children, etc., are going to have better lives? And and you're gonna look at carbon emission um, and abate carbon abatement and and all of these things. So um, it's almost as if you need a digital twin <laughs> for the right. area that you're about to do. An intervention or project in and a digital twin of the project and you might want to predict or simulate uh, what happens to everyone who's connected to this marine space and this project in terms of certain key metrics right and insights yeah. around that be important so th that's just the data end of it and in terms of monitoring obviously once you start doing the planning you go into a phase called development and that's where you actually do the build installation, testing, commissioning, and then operations. And when you start operating, and these projects, when you talk about renewable energy projects, they're 20, 25, 30 years. And during those 25 years, on average, let's say, you will need to be monitoring performance of the asset, quote-unquote. You'll need mm. to monitor the environment by which the asset is operating in. You need to understand the people around it, and you need to understand the activities around it so um there is a kind of ecosystem thinking that it needs to come into play here and all of those need touch points of information data information insights um, and from planning all the way to operation maintenance you're doing monitoring obviously and even in decommissioning you, you you need to understand what happens after the intervention as well. All of mm -hmm. these are very, I would say, data rich, and uh, and that's an opportunity um, for us to understand uh, the blue economy better 
right? And to understand the dynamics by which um, these agents <laughs> and as well mm. as the change um, would then uh, come into play. So I hope that kind of answers your question. Um, I'm not sure if... Uh, it it, uh, it, it does. I, I, I was just wondering if we were to juxtapose onshore mainstream technologies, data data monitoring and, and, and data intelligence, say, for example, for solar and wind. So a lot of the things that you mentioned, like, uh, you know, the technology assessment, the, you know, the, 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 mar- the market assessment, et cetera, those seems to be kind of true for all of the different technologies. But is, there, is, is it m- more difficult to gather some of this uh, kind of blue economy related data in, in, in other words, and, and I guess a, a related question which comes to mind is why hasn't you know stuff which has been around for quite some time like tidal or other forms of uh, ocean rene- of, of marine energy uh, taken off is it is it because of the lack of data uh, lack of understanding of the resource or what what so, so two two questions. Sorry, I'm mixing the two together. One is, what's what's so special about uh, blue economy uh, data monitoring and data intelligence? And also, uh, is this one of the reasons why it hasn't taken off? Is because the data is so hard to get? Yeah. So I'll answer. Uh, I guess the I, I guess the first question. Maybe the second question first. <laughs> so mm-hmm. sure. Um, one of the major reasons why blue economy, um, I would say, projects um, haven't taken off um, and sprouted like mushrooms, if you may, is because of the lack of awareness. That's, that's the main thing. Um, people tend to understand silos of the sectors or the industries that they're working in. Yeah, sure. I know energy. Awesome, right? You're a solar guy. You also mm. know the technology on marine floating solar. That's cool. And then you have another guy who says, I know aquaculture. Awesome. You know, you know all the fish species, what kind of food and the rate by which you need to grow them, etc. But you talk about combining these two <laughs> and say, well, can you use floating solar with aquaculture farms? And the answer should be yes. But then mm. how comes a little bit of a, hmm, let's understand and find out, you know, what's the how here? You know, how, I mean... They don't even know whether they could put the solar on top of the fish cages, beside it, or totally separate it. You know, so there, there's there's that um, teething issue, as as you know, with uh, certain new projects that mm-hmm. still needs to um, happen. And I suppose that's just part of the maturing process of of the blue economy. And no one understands that blue economy means thinking about the other sectors. Um, and not just your particular uh, your particular project or your technology. That is a very, very, I would say, not even a blue economy thinking. That That's probably just thinking about, well, I'm thinking about energy. That's it, full stop. And sorry, that's not blue economy at all. So where is the mm. sustainable use of ocean resources there? Well, I'm doing renewables. Isn't that sustainable enough? Uh, I don't think so. So, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. lack of awareness of what blue economy is, is, is leading to the fact that maybe the adoption is is not as fast. But um, in the same token, I think that presents an opportunity because there will be more and more applications requiring, let's say, 
energy or co-applications, uh, co-use of, uh, of, uh, of the resource. Energy, food, and water, right? These three, there's a nexus mm-hmm. that's being defined around it for sustainable development in islands. And I, I like, I was in a panel last week. Um, they spoke about changing the way we look at small island developing states to large ocean states you know and that that is very true you know talk about palau and the marshall islands even though they have small islands but their exclusive economic zone is like thousands and thousands of hectares hundreds of thousands of hectares so so actually they have a lot of ocean space but you know they only have small islands yet people consider them maybe not asset rich not yet at least so anyway i go back to your second question what about the the data what what makes the data in the blue economy so different from Let's say the one on shore. Um, I think that um, there are um, complexities that are somewhat similar um, in terms of the data sets that you need and the kind of um, dynamics of uh, certain types of uh, data and uh, maybe uh, groups of uh, representations. Um, for instance, and in land. You know, if you want to put solar on on a building. Um, all you need is how much space am I allowed to use and <laughs> how much load is the building <laughs> going to consume. And I could size my solar and, and that's easy. But you think about it from a, okay, a land use perspective and say, okay, I'm going to do ground mounted solar. Wait a minute. Is that land for agriculture? Should I change the classification of that land? What mm-hmm. about the scope? What about the um, geohazards? Is this a typhoon prone area? Or what about um, you know, uh, uh, road access, uh, and, and what about landslides? Is this uh, is this prone to that? Um, and then you, you start going into the details of it, and and site suitability studies for these types of projects actually are not that um, uh, straightforward. Although they might be, you know, comprehensive, uh, they and and they may seemingly be complex. Um, they're not necessarily complicated, so because people know how to do them, and that's because you know people understand the information that's required. People understand a list or the standards that we need to comply with as well. Um, I think something similar in the blue economy space when I talk about marine floating solar only really happened uh, less than a decade ago. So I would say even just five years ago. And mm-hmm. that's because people were trying to exploit, quote unquote, uh, the resources on land first, you know, use the land first. It's easier, you know, why complicate things going to sea when there are more challenging um, environments? You have waves and, and wind and tides and, and salt water, you know, salt water and electronics don't mix that well. So, you know, mm-hmm. people say, why go for that when I could have something on shore first? So that's, that's a valid point. But now we have to think about it because if if you're in archipelagic um, setting, you don't have a lot of space on land, and you probably want to reserve that for you know people and uh, food and uh, maybe forms of businesses. So you you have actually um, less of an optionality when you are in this small island developing states or archipelagic nations. You have to think of the marine spaces and that's where you know um maybe there's not yet a lot of um, r&d 
brought forth uh, because it is something relatively new. But uh, I think now it's time for us to understand it better. So just to stitch those two answers together, the lack of awareness and and obviously the lack of uh, more credible information around what's available in blue economy um, sectors and ocean resources and let's say the technologies themselves um, kind of is, is a gap that is being filled um, not in a very fast rate, but it is getting there. So in terms of what's special at sea, um, so it's not just about the environment, which is obviously not hard land, <laughs> mm, <laughs> but also mm. sort of the, the use of the sea space, you know. Um, there aren't really roads uh, at sea. Mm, 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 it's not, mm, 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 you can't see it. But, you know, there are guidance to where certain areas and lanes are. and jurisdiction you know at least in the philippines the jurisdiction of the sea falls back to a you can't have a title and own that piece of or area of the sea whereas on land yeah you could have um private owners and you know there could be some which are uh, owned by local government but at sea it's by default not something you can own at least for the philippines not as a private uh, um, entity anyway so you mm, need to mm. work with government and that poses the question of, hey, marine spatial planning, how do we plan our marine space? And is it up to us to sort of distribute concession? How do people apply for it? If they apply for it for aquaculture, can they put in renewable energy as well, even if it's not for their aquaculture operations anymore? So, you know, these are questions about how they come in to regulate and, and what kind of permitting and consenting is required, you know? Um, and one space in, and I mean, this is sort of, speaks to the connectivity of it all. Um, if you <laughs> pollute uh, one part of the sea, for sure, <laughs> that's not going to stay in that part forever. It's going to move all around and have global impact, you know? And so people need to make sure, make sure that there are safeguards around this as well. So I, I hope I've answered your questions yes yes and it was a was a it was a complicated question it was a little bit mixed up as well one final a very final question about so this was more the kind of background to to the blue economy and um, the ecosystem um one, one final question about the background of the blue economy which is um the risk side of things um you know we all kind of read if anybody's read about climate change we all read about the rising sea levels um, is that an additional investment risk or is it an opportunity mm. so um i have to paint this uh i have to paint this in context I, I think so if we don't do anything um at the moment um, global warming we understand that and you know it has its impact already with melting of the ice you know on and then you have rising sea levels okay but one not so highlighted um, impact uh, is ocean acidification. So carbon um, that gets trapped or gets produced and then trapped uh, in our environments uh, also actually gets trapped into the sea. And uh, the sea, <laughs> um, being that it's a solution, a water wa is a water solution. Um, also has its pH levels, 
And the more carbon that goes into the sea, uh, the more acidic it becomes. And the more acidic it becomes, you know, certain creatures with that are sensitive to acidity of the oceans begin to die. Even those uh, uh, shelled or crustaceans or those that have certain protective layers around them, um, their protective covers crumble because of mm. uh, rise in acidity, which then um, has impact on the food web because these smaller creatures are obviously uh, food to other creatures, which are also food to other creatures, which are food to, hey, guess what? <laughs> Human beings, right? So mm-hmm. the rising sea levels, I would say, uh, in a certain perspective, um, presents an opportunity for us to act. We know that it's happening. It's good. We have evidence, right? And uh, probably has already been tapped by industries and even countries to promote certain types of uh, uh, intervention. Like, oh, we need coastal seawalls. You know, we need we need to protect our land. Awesome, great. Mm. So that this construction, you know, oh, we probably want to make sure that the. Uh, we have not just one meter of coastal wall or protection. Let's make it five meters in anticipation of the next 50 years. Okay, awesome. Um, and then countries uh, like Singapore are forward thinking or forward looking um, like that. Um, but even if you defend against rising tide levels, um, you know, it's not going to stop unless you go to the root of the problem, which is A, okay, carbon, right? Carbon is the problem. Um, the melting, uh, global warming, it's all a result of this. And so we mm. need to reduce carbon emission. And that in itself, I mean, that's the whole green greening story, the green economy story, right? So let's stop the mm. carbon um, from, can we look at, you know, uh, non-carbon solutions? And if we could, then, you know, that is an opportunity. So in the same token, I would say, Let's reframe that question. The rising sea levels um, are a consequence. And whether or not you you invest in this project or you don't invest in this project, I think the rising sea levels, um, it's good to have them there as both a risk, but it is a risk that's signaling you with the opportunities behind it. And the opportunities behind it are, okay, what are ways for us to reduce the root cause? And ways mm. to reduce the cost would be okay. Let's let's not do band-aid type solutions. Sorry, our uh, patchwork. You know, let's look at mm. okay. How do we then really move from um, carbon positive to net zero? Right. I mean, that's that's the whole sort of goal there. And 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 that is a large transformation composed of maybe multiple um, sub transformations that's required globally. And I think if we see rising tide levels and we connect that, oh, you know what? Ocean acidification is actually the main problem. We need to think how about how we can battle this with regenerative marine industries. And, and this is what the Asian Development Bank has been trying to push um, a little bit further. How can you make use sustainably, uh, make use of your resources, your ocean resources, so that you mm. do have true blue economy and think about not just taking from the ocean but giving back to the ocean directly and so mm-hmm. people are looking at um 
uh, accelerated uh, coral reef habilitation, for instance, you know, using mineral accretion technology. Well, that's one way that you could use excess electricity, right? So, okay, that's good. What about, you know, putting in uh, marine floating solar in areas where you could have uh, accelerated growth of corals and also um, other carbon sequestration potential uh, elements at sea? And, you know, there's a way for you to shade them from from the heat. And, and therefore, it's proven that you could basically... Um, help cool down <laughs> um, uh, seawater or the environment are, are around it. And there's been a lot of proof. And in fact, um, countries which have um, um, done what's called rigs to reef programs um, have actually seen uh, uh, assets at sea. Uh, if you design them and leave them properly, you could attract more um, ecosystem growth around them. So. You know, we need to think now uh, a bit more strategically in terms of how we we look at uh, investments in, in the blue economy, because even though they are interventions to combat um, or at least, you know, the impact of climate change and, and go down to the root cause, uh, the projects themselves need to be uh, designed um, in a way where we can see how the, from, from, conception all the way to um, decommissioning, um, you could have a full life cycle, which is maybe not just net zero, but, you know, um, net negative in carbon or even basically net positive in terms of carbon abatement, right? Right, so, right. So I, I, would, I would say that the, if you reframe the question of rising sea levels, so yeah, it is, can be considered a risk to the investment, but it's a signal or an opportunity and uh, that opportunity which then answers the root cause of it is a large opportunity <laughs> and the mm -hmm, european mm -hmm. Union said the ocean economy is three to six trillion us dollars right and uh that's that's not even sure as to how much it can grow and just looking at southeast asia just looking at mangroves and seagrass is already 681 billion US dollars in terms of market. And, and so um, actually, this is a space where it's still hugely untapped. And, and, and what we understand now uh, about blue economy is still a bit limited, but uh, you know, it's, it's a huge space and we have the opportunity to understand it better. And we have the opportunity to make this a pathway for decarbonization using things like regenerative marine industries or holistic thinking and ecosystem thinking around it. Fantastic. Um, so we've gone through an enormous amount of materials. I'm going to have to listen to the podcast again just so I get my head around it to give us so much insights and so much information. So we talked about the blue economy in general. We talked about some of the technologies. Uh, we talked about some of the challenge. We talked about the monitoring uh, of the data and the data intelligence as well. And finally, you know, what what the rising sea levels kind of means in terms of investment risk and opportunity. Um, shifting, completely shifting gear, but talking about um, your company, because, you know, you, you're the chief executive officer of a blue economy startup. And I think it's, it's a great case study uh, to better understand um, the opportunities 
the you know the the business and investment opportunities in the blue economy. So could we discuss a little bit about your company, uh, Ocean Pixel? Um, maybe we can start at the beginning. You know, where did the idea come from, and and uh, you know what what does the company do now? Yeah, sure. Um, so Ocean Pixel, um, as the name uh, probably holds, uh, people who are geeky enough to look at ocean and pixel picture element um, will probably make the connection. Okay, um, these are folks that probably want to uh, connect the painting of a thousand words. A picture paints a thousand words. And a picture element, you know, even if one dot could represent many, many things. So if you're thinking about ocean pixel, uh, there are one of three interpretations that that can (laughs) lead to. One is, uh, uh, oh, you must be an underwater photography or videography uh, <laughs> company, which we are not. Uh, <laughs> but we do, we do use videos and images, sure, but we are not your typical sort of uh, photo shoot underwater kind of thing. Second, oh, then you must be the one sort of mapping uh, the seas, you know, um, remote sensing, satellite data. Um, surveys underwater, um, uh, underwater, awesome. I say, yeah, that's, that's part of what we do and we need to have surveys um, to be able to understand certain things about the oceans and the marine environments. It's, but that's not really a core business. And the third one would probably be closer to who we really are. And our tagline is enabling sustainability through data intelligence. Ocean mm. Pixel is but an enabler, right? So we are, quote unquote, a, a supposedly your Swiss knife, your, your suite of tools that allows you to look at the blue economy a little bit better. And if I may, the company was spun off from uh, the Energy Research Institute at Nanyang Technological University in 2014 to start supporting marine renewable energy project developers and uh, various stakeholders around just renewable energy. And we grew um, throughout the now eight years, um, starting with knowledge about marine renewable energy in Southeast Asia. And you know the idea was to help um, have more and more technologies deployed and more and more projects happen in the region. Uh, we kind of touched base with different stakeholders that became then our clients and customers and partners that uh, were categorized into not just project developers, but also technology providers, also financiers, also government, also permitting and consenting people, also engineering procurement and construction folks, and even other consultants. So um, instead of us uh, being just, you know, looking at, oh, this one particular client client category, it became that we supported the multiple players in the in the industry, um, and that was just looking at energy. Then mm. um, it became clear to us that whatever tools we were using to understand how we answer certain questions in the renewable energy space also were relevant to folks who were using marine spaces. When someone wants to electrify uh, their fleet, they need same information around someone who would want to deploy renewable energy in an area. And 
it's the same information, the same data, the same layers, and maybe somewhat to a certain extent the same techniques that we use to answer questions of an aquaculture farm about whether or not he can transition from fossil fuel-based systems to something more green. And that would be a combination of, hey, use renewable energy. By the way, don't use fossil fuel-based boats anymore and use electric boats. And then you have, whoa, one, two, three sectors coming together now. And uh, all the more, you know, with water and islands. And and so we ended up building um, an ecosystem of uh, uh, of tools that, that we use uh, in our consulting work. And people see us as, okay, yeah, sure, you are the go-to experts for um, some stuff in Southeast Asia and small island developing states. That's good. Um, but, you know, that's not who we really are or who we want to be, although we're good at that. Uh, we see ourselves as enablers, as I mentioned to you, right? And how do we do that? Enabling mechanism is data intelligence. So we want to be, and this is the journey that we've been up, up to actually, um, we want to be building the digital ecosystem where people and stakeholders can come in and say, you know what, I need data on this site. I probably would be able to find that with Ocean Pixel's help. And mm. I want to develop a project around this, and that would probably be uh, useful using this particular application or platform that Ocean Pixel has. So it brings the players around the table to a faster route to, to commercialization, faster route to market, essentially. So we want to enable that, and that's all good. And I, we haven't even spoken about what about the blue carbon assets, right? So people who have access to mangroves or access to seagrass, right? It should be quite easy for them and there isn't such a tool just yet for them to inventorize those assets and bring that to a blue carbon credit exchange market. But it's not that straightforward at this point in time. So we want to, and we have this ambition, uh, if we want to give back to these communities and make them have sustainable development, then can we not help them access resources, which, by the way, the market is hungry for to give? Like, they want to buy carbon credits. They don't know where to get carbon credits. Hey, you know, here's a developing country, the Maldives, Marshall Islands, Palau, and the Philippines, and folks in Southeast Asia that are sitting on blue carbon assets, and yet they aren't matched yet. So here's, here's an opportunity for us to sort of get them there. So helping the marine renewable energy ecosystem, sure, and helping the wider blue economy set of sectors also decarbonize and sort of have their transition, not just energy transition, but sustainability transition, then giving back to the local communities that actually have um, blue carbon assets, and then therefore they need to maintain and monitor them. All of that is part of the bigger picture of what we want to do. So as Ocean Pixel, we are building this digital ecosystem to enable sustainability through data intelligence. And I hope that sort of wraps up. <laughs> right. Uh, could, could you give us a, you know, obviously, you know, there's, there's commercial, commercial secrets and, you know, um, sure, sure. stuff that you're not allowed to share, but could you give us an example of the kind of work of that, 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 that Ocean Pixel does? Yes, yes. Uh, sorry. Maybe maybe I'll give you three examples if, if you don't mind. So sure, sure. Um, 
So one one uh, project uh, that we've been working on with uh, our UK partner Aquaterra. So we formed a joint venture. We called it a uh, joint venture between Ocean Pixel and Aquaterra. Lo and behold, you have Ocean Terra as the creative name. <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, project development uh, vehicle um, is what we use uh, to develop projects uh, on our own or co-develop projects that we think might be useful. Um, so we have a project in the Philippines that looks at um, an island microgrid. And, and to start with, put in you know your traditional solar renewable energy on land and see if we can put one offshore and also tidal in-stream energy to hybridize uh, currently fossil fuel-based uh, monopoly. And right now they're paying uh, close to 50 US cents per kilowatt hour. With this hybrid system, they'll bring it down by at least 20%. So that's already a good techno-economic case for them to, to consider renewables. And um, even though it's not a lot, it's, it's less than two megawatts in terms of load, um, there's a lot of people on the island. Um, just, uh, I think it's uh, between 15,000 to 20,000. And we don't want to look at just energy, as I mentioned to you. We want to see what the energy services might look like as well, other services around it that's enabled by the energy. So we've spoken to this island, uh, the local government unit, um, this is in a region called Samar uh, in the Philippines. And what we want to do is start with the energy and then look at, mm. okay, can we then look at the uh, aquaculture side of things where, you know, maybe the local folks start growing, uh, start using uh, electricity for productive use. And the productive use could be anything from uh, ice making to let's say electric vessel charging, to um, uh, a bit of a let's say uh, business uh, in the maybe water water side of things. So, so mm -hmm. this is what 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 we mean. But on the island, the moment that you have uh, clean, affordable, and reliable energy, the business people start thinking about what they can do um, on that island for markets beyond that island so they mm -hmm. start thinking about hey you know what yeah i could export ice because that other island actually needs ice they don't have it but we can now generate it here and basically bring it to them and people can start thinking about hmm, other creative business models you know and so uh, that would be one example that i would put forward as uh, something that we're working on as ocean terra to look at you know energy uh, potentially as a service because of the productive use around it. So whether it's transportation, so electric boats, or ice making and water, um, those are all services that we want to enable on the island. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. the, the other one would be um, uh, in, in Mindanao, the southern part of, of the Philippines, because that, sorry, that model of the summer island in the Philippines, we also use that for, for the Maldives and actually mm. working with the Asian Development Bank to look at a uh, ocean renewable energy pilot uh, to couple that with let's say um, uh, island not just electrification but also um, the productive use of the energy again you know if you have fishing then you will need ice because you want to prolong the life of uh, well prolong mm -hmm. the fresh fish so and, mm -hmm. and that would be one very good use case 
water is also something which uh, could be on a platform, you know. So you see the replicability in different geographies of the same type of approach. So we have enabled that in private venture. We have enabled that in uh, sort of a international development organizations pilot project in the Maldives. So, so we see that as quite good. Now, the other case uh, is to look at blue economy development in Mindanao, which is the southern part of the of the Philippines. They, um, uh, we've signed an MOU with the Mindanao Development Authority last September 2022 um, to look at uh, doing evaluation of blue assets around uh, uh, Mindanao. And we're talking about regions which probably have traditionally uh, only tourism as their um, source of economic income, you know? Mm, mm, so mm, mm, mm. it's surfing area in Shargao, so good waves in there, um, or, you know, the uh, bit remote areas, sort of untouched diving spots um, where people go to. Um, that's sort of all they have. And, you know, during COVID, when people were not going to these islands, oh boy, they were really suffering. Right. Mm, mm, so mm, 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 mm. make them more resilient. Uh, we need to have other income for them. And one way that we're doing this is to look at can we help them value their blue carbon assets and bring those blue carbon assets as asset managers of those assets into a international carbon credit exchange platform. Mm. By doing that. Um, we can give back to them bulk of the value of the blue carbon assets so that they could then say, protect it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and invest in making sure that they, they actively conserve it, <laughs> actively conserve it by not allowing, you know, certain developments to happen or certain activities, etc. If we can help them do that and think of them as people who may not, truly be uh, the, the ones that first crack what, oh, you know, the circular economy might be. They might, they might not understand that. The local folks will probably understand, you know what, if you do this, then you get money, right? So it's as simple mm. as that. If you protect this, if you conserve this, you will get money and you will continue to get money, by the way, if you continue to protect this. So that's an easy enough um, um uh, model for them and it'll be like okay so if i just make sure that things here are growing and i don't allow or you know cyanide fishing or i don't allow picking of this or i don't destroy this etc you're gonna give me money to do that uh, yes in fact it's enough for you to basically um get your family to a state where you know you can live off of this so so that's sort of um what we're trying to do with, with uh, a few island communities um, and coastal communities around Mindanao. And Mindanao is a lot of ocean space. And we think that this is replicable in other countries too. So that would be case study number two for us. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the third case study is uh, sort of, um, we're working with the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Center out of Australia. And that's a 10-year program that started in 2018. Uh, the, the end goal is obviously to also promote the blue economy, but then we, we came in to allow the development of digital tools, digital twinning and digital tools for 
the different sectors. And, and when we say that, um, so in renewable energy, of course you use digital tools. And once you have your plants, whether it's a hydrogen <laughs> hydrogen facility or an aquaculture facility or an electric vessel fleet, you do need to have some form of digital twinning that's happening with them, not just to know how they operate, but also to optimize carbon-wise how they operate. So this... Um, uh, Mike, sorry for interrupting. You may want to explain what digital the digital twins twin. actually is. Because sure. when, when I was writing my books, I couldn't get my head around it. And I had to have a <laughs> friend who's an engineer to explain it to me. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. I mean, uh, so... The digital twin is is part of a, uh, I would say, also a family of uh, digital definitions. <laughs> so uh, the the most basic one is uh, just simple monitoring, right? So digital monitoring means that you you digitize data, you send data, and then that you categorize it and just analyze data. It's okay, it's that's monitoring. That's simple. That's not yet a digital twin. Um, then you have probably some form of simulation, right? Simulation, prediction, modeling that that happens, and and that is obviously all digital, digitally done now. Mm-hmm. That's still not well. Digital twinning happens when you have both uh, the data being gathered, uh, and then that you could maybe use that for modeling and prediction, and also feedback. Um, information that you probably have now because of your analysis into maybe the operation. So um, when we talk about digital twin, it's a copy, sure. It's a copy of of whatever that plant or facility is. It could be a power plant. It could be an aquaculture facility. And you could have maybe a, a digital model of, of uh, what it is, a representation of mm of that particular facility or asset. Sure, so that's good. And you can even do this for the, the oceans and the sea of that particular area. You could have a digital representation of that area. And then you could do modeling, hydrodynamics, and all that. So very good. Now, the twin aspect comes when you try and feed back the insights to that system that you are modeling or twinning, as they say. And and that uh, gives us um way of uh you know if you were to wait for <laughs> for uh let's say data to happen um you might end up that the event that you're trying to defend against already happens before you actually understand it so what digital twinning does is is provides you with a way to accelerate uh, a little bit on the insights that you generate um using what if scenarios you know oh what if uh a typhoon happens you know what happens mm, to my mm, facility? Mm, mm, you don't mm. need to wait for typhoon to happen. You can actually simulate that that event, and you know you can say, "Oh, okay, my cables here are gonna be at risk, and so I need to protect them." Oh, there's gonna be some form of erosion or or landslide or storm surge, or you know, so so you can then start doing risk um, management and mitigation better. So, um, so, so in 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 other words, is it's almost like in architecture you do a three D model. Of a building, and then the next step yes. is you try to uh, kind of have different scenarios. I don't know if there's an earthquake, what would happen, or the insulation, et cetera, et cetera. But all of that yes. is done in the, at the digital level before you actually build 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 the project. Yeah. Sorry, sorry for interrupting, yes. but um, it it is I think a very important concept. No so could we go back to your um, 
to your kind of case study number three with uh, the Blue Economy uh, Cooperative Research Center in Australia? Yes. Yeah. So the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Center has asked us to work with them as Ocean Pixel to be their digital partner um, in all their blue economy R and research and development. And, and that is a very good position for us to be in. So starting with risks, what are the blue economy risks in different sectors and how do they eh, sort of relate to each other? So what we've come up as one of the projects uh, was to um, catalog and, and come uh, and get experts um, to generate insights uh, around different blue economy projects and how that might be viewed. Even if it's relativistic, it's okay because this is the pool of knowledge where we want certain insights to come from. So if you're a politician, you're going to ask yourself, should we invest in coastal protection or should we invest in a wave energy converter? Um, which can do coastal protection. Should we put investment in ocean thermal energy with a deep water pipe that can actually also develop other businesses? Or should we just focus on using our uh, land and sea for solar? You know, So those are things that, that you may want to sort of think about. And so what, what we've done is to do like a, an online risk registry um, for blue economy risk. And uh, um, with that comes certain hazards, certain impacts. And, you know, we've gotten workshops of experts uh, to participate in what might be perceived as risk, but are not really risks. And this is one way of getting that awareness out there. And this is just the start because once you understand um, different types of projects have different types of risks and have uh, a way of... Uh, that are dynamically linked, by the way, uh, to each other, then you start to understand where the concerns are and what we can do to either eliminate those risks or, or mitigate uh, uh, the impact of those risks. So um, that's very important because I don't think there is any such aggregated knowledge pool yet of blue economy risks uh, at the moment. And, and then that could be a contribution uh, not just to Australia, but but to the world, right? And uh, coupled with that, uh, we then sort of ventured into scoping out three more projects. One is on data, uh, data infrastructure. What kind of data and exchanges would you need to have so that you can, quote unquote, have um, uh, cross stock? Not not cross stock. Cross stock is a negative term, but you could have um, a common. Uh, language almost, or that the data that you generate in one industry could be used in other industries. So this is particularly important now that we are aware that oceans and spaces and resources are not just for one sector anymore. So the data infrastructure project, that's something we're working on with the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Center. We're also working on digital twinning of certain um, um, uh projects uh, when I say that I mean really assets like a hydrogen uh, hydrogen facility or an offshore uh, platform for renewable energy and other applications so and the environment so how do you how do you apply this digital twinning concept to your environment you know so if you're gonna put in a floating platform 
you know, that has a different impact to the environment. Whereas if you put in an offshore wind farm and you stick it down, it's different as well. What about if you have electric vessels around? So different. So digital twinning, um, the physical environment and maybe looking at its environmental impact, uh, that's going to be a service actually to project developers. And so these are tools, although they may seem like different modules of different things, um, building out the digital ecosystem for the blue economy is, I think, a, a one of the more worthwhile um, avenues for us to contribute back to the blue economy and truly enable uh, sustainable development. So I, I, I know that that's probably still a little bit abstract, but, uh, you know, just applying digitalization for the blue economy sectors is actually a good enough a service and good enough a market uh, to pursue. So I think right. that that ends our three case studies. <laughs> Mike, that's simply fantastic. I mean, you know, um, all of the background on the on the blue economy, and then uh, three specific case studies as to. Uh, what one particular company is actively doing in the blue economy to to bring this to 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 the end sadly uh because i think this could go on for for a while it's such a huge topic just like the ocean um could could you perhaps share with us where do you see the you know the blue, the blue economy going i mean you mentioned earlier that you know it, it's uh it's an opportunity worth, you know, several trillion uh, dollars. So where where do you see things happening go, going for the next, you know, five or ten years? And then also, if you could uh, share with uh, with us your kind of long term vision for Ocean Pixel, please. Yeah, sure. So there are a couple of um, trends uh, I would say happening in the blue economy um, in the next five or ten years. Um, folks are. Um, developing a lot of uh, marine uh, and offshore um, projects. Um, I would say maybe starting from coastal, marine, and offshore. Um, and this this would be mega projects. Um, energy would be one of them, like uh, offshore wind uh, that's already happening um, in the region. For instance, Southeast Asia, yes, Taiwan, Vietnam, the Philippines is coming up as well. but. I mean, globally, offshore wind has been installing like uh, more than one turbine per day, essentially, right? <laughs> and that's right, uh, right, right, uh, right, right. Two, two megawatts worth of capacity per day. But and they they need to do that for I think four years or something, and then that that's not a bad thing. So mm-hmm. more and more of these uh, offshore renewables are are gonna come out, and and that's one trend. The, the mega the mega things, you know, gigawatts of installed capacity. Maybe um, uh, looking at aquaculture, so um, larger scale aquaculture happening as well, and then you know there are more and more desalination uh, plants will, will probably be a solution. Um, so uh, in five to ten years, this blue economy space is going to start getting busy with large scale projects. But also, and I think this is going to be more uh, instrumental uh, in the development of a true blue economy are the smaller projects, the smaller, replicable, many multi-stakeholder, even though that's, that's, that's hard to always manage, there will be more of these smaller projects just because 
the ones who are impacted and the ones who the stakeholders who are in need of of uh, true sustainable development are the ones who are in small islands um, in mm. small island developing states in coastal areas they're the ones who will be impacted and these are the ones that actually need the resources to start doing something locally you know and i know for a pro- from a project development perspective that's such a headache you know because you spend the same amount of time developing a project that's worth 5 megawatts than it's worth 50 megawatts you probably want to spend time more on the 50 megawatts but and and this is where i think there's a little bit of a disconnect when you talk about impacting people and and you need a program um i think uh, impact investors should look at um a different metric and i think they already are starting to do this all the more coupled that with what the asian development bank has been championing to look at regenerative marine industries where you actually give back to the sea and try to directly uh contribute um to environmental um uh health of the sea you know so mm-hmm. how do you then give back to the sea right and then that's something worth pondering and I guess over the next five to ten years, people will think about how better regenerative marine industries um, can be developed, and it not just the rigs to reef type programs, not just you know large scale seagrass deployment. Uh, also looking at maybe seaweed uh, uh, harvesting or decarbonization of the tuna industry and the canning uh, factories, etc. But um, you know other creative interventions, and and I think this this space uh, warrants a little bit of investigation uh, because the large scale projects that's probably the easy part, right? The right. more challenging part are small scale projects um, that actually open up the people and the stakeholders to thinking this way, and you know, in their generation, my generation, and the future generation of the kids, this is what they're gonna remember. I don't mm-hmm. think they'll connect very much with large-scale offshore wind farms in one part of the country versus something that's small-scale, 50 kilowatt, 100 kilowatt, but provides you know my family with water and electricity. That's a powerful, powerful story for the community to sort of um, uh, embrace. And I and I think that is where our sustainability story really needs to stem from. You know where they actually live and breathe um, these types of practices. So I think that's the space uh, we are looking at for the blue economy. And as a company, Ocean Pixel, the way that we see ourselves playing in this um, blue economy trajectory over the next five to 10 years would be, let's just continue enabling um, the ecosystems around the blue economy. Whether we start with digital tools that help them with their planning or help them monetize their assets that they manage or look at, the the digital twinning of the environment so that they can um, uh, better take care of the blue economy sectors that they're operating in. Uh, We could basically be the interface, the glue and sort of connectors, the deal makers making this this happen. And and, uh, we would love uh, to bring about an accelerated version of this in which we actually, as a spin-off and as a startup, are always uh, seeking um, appropriate partners and funding, uh, investors and financing of the projects, etc. And we would like to uh, continue you know, looking for those uh, 
collaborators and, and partners that we can work with to bring uh, the blue economy forward and make it a reality. One, one uh, kind of follow-up question to, to all of this. Um, are there already uh, like private equity funds or some other of other funds purely just focused on uh, blue economy? Is there, is there a lot out there uh, or is it that's, very, that's a very That's a very good question, Joseph, yeah. So um, only late last year did I realize that finally there are now um, organizations, financial institutions and funding organizations that are looking at just blue economy. And it mm. got confirmed during the high-level investor forum that happened in Kuala Lumpur, organized by the Asian Development Bank. I'm, I was able to meet uh, uh, a few more. And uh, there are folks like uh, Ocean Assets, I think is one of them. Um, they're also sort of pulling together different uh, sustainable or should we say impact investors. There's one in Singapore um, that's called uh, uh, Narwhale Ventures. And uh, they they are looking just the blue economy, and it's so good that we did not need to convince them about the blue economy. They understood it, and they said, "We're here to find deals, right? <laughs> and you know, mm-hmm. let, let's source deals, make it happen." Because they have a pool of funding ready to be deployed. I said, "This is good, you know, <laughs> because mm-hmm. the past, uh, oh, the past maybe before before late last year, we would have been needing to convince people that this is worthwhile to invest in. Now they're saying we know it's worthwhile." What do you guys have, right? So right. that's good. And then you have, you know, the United Nations Development Program. They also have this uh, global coral reef fund of, of some sort. Mm-hmm. You know, then they mm-hmm. invest and they finance projects around it. There's one called the Malloy Fund. I don't know if you've heard of them, but sort of based out here as well. So I, I think this space is beginning to get a little bit of traction from impact investors and even sort of the more savvy um, sort of just both equity and uh, and sort of a venture capital as well. Um, so they are moving into this this space, and I think it's early days, but definitely great potential there um, because you don't see them, you know, in the same way that you see other sort of uh, uh, vehicles actually put in money. Right, so it's still early days. So there's only a few of them. And, and well, well, that's a good uh, niche. As as you said, you know, um, awareness is absolutely key, and it's really, really great to see that uh, awareness is slowly uh, building up. So, uh, providing you know some bright prospects to the business and investments of uh, in, in of the blue economy or in the blue economy, I should say. Um, Mike, I just uh, want to really, really thank you for your great insights. Uh, lots of uh, lots of clarifications on uh, various aspects of the blue economy on the business and finance side and um yeah just want to want to thank you very very much for today's uh, episode no problem at all joseph yeah happy to contribute i hope you did enjoy this episode of the asia climate finance podcast I would really appreciate any feedback, topic, ideas, etc. Uh, my contact is in the show notes. Thank you.